0: Good morning to you. Good morning. All right, let's have a quick church fight. Which way is southwest from where I'm standing? Okay, so if you okay, so in my house it seems like sort of east is over here where the sun rises and west is over there, so probably southwest is in this general vicinity. If you answer differently, you can bring up some compass and figure that out and then you can prove us all wrong. But we're going to go with this way. Nobody really seemed to disagree. 126 miles southwest, maybe that way, of Calvary Church lies Adamstown, Pennsylvania, where in 1989, a man paid $4 in a flea market for an otherwise utterly unremarkable painting. The bargain hunter only bought the portrait because he wanted the frame. And so when he came home, he liberated the painting from the frame. And he discovered a document that was nestled between the painting and its backing. And it turns out that document was one of the 24 original copies of the Declaration of Independence. And it went on to sell at auction for over $2.4 million. Now, as we started discovering last week, many times we don't understand what we already have. And our sermon is, Christians, seek jockeying for position and start comprehending your possessions. Because many times as Christians, like the person with the painting, we don't understand what we already have in Christ. And so, we try to grab by force from one another what we already have by faith through Jesus Christ. And it looks like this. We start jockeying in to elbow our brothers and sisters so we can get a little higher on the pecking order. Instead of uniting around Christ, we divide around men. Instead of keeping the gospel central and seeing each part of Christ's body as absolutely vital, we start to promote distractions instead of the gospel, and and we start to divide into factions instead of seeing each part as vital. Instead of being godly, we become worldly. Instead of Scripture that does not stutter in its clarity and perspicuity, we'll do what they did and and seek lofty, flowery words of eloquence that lack any spiritual vibrance because they have no real substance. They just tickle our ears and say what we want to hear. They They are the world's words and the world's, wisdom. Now these worldly ways sometimes work. That is, they work temporarily. Uh, They work pragmatically. But the Bible is very clear. They have no power to deliver the goods eternally. And that's where it matters. And so it is in the midst of this confusion that's happening in the Corinthian congregation where they're majoring in the minors and splitting over nothing and distractions and factions and, and jockeying and elbowing and I've got to get mine and to get mine you've got to lose yours that Paul writes to us today. This Sunday we're going to conclude our time in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 18 to 23. 23. And in just six terse verses, we're going to see heaven's explanation to the question of how to arrest factions and divisions within a local congregation. And God's answer is this it's the title of our sermon Christian, cease jockeying for position and start comprehending your possession. Christian, cease jockeying for position and start comprehending your possession. You can find 1 Corinthians 3.18 on the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 12.12. So if you don't have a copy of Scripture, please use one of ours. Page 12.12 will take you to 1 Corinthians 3.18. And as we turn in the word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that word in our time together this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for books like Corinthians that remind us that you know, you're in a messy discipleship project with us, that you're taking worldly sinners and building us into heavenly saints. And we have this proclivity to iniquity, we have this me-first-ism, we have this desire to be like God when there is only one true God. Uh, We want to be a law unto ourselves, we want to do what's right in our own eyes, and so there's strife and quarrels and contention because of our passions. And so Lord Jesus, we pray that these six verses today that we look at a second time as we focus in on the second two major points from this minor passage that we would really be arrested by these truths, that we would be apprehended by the reality that instead of grabbing for things, we need to tap into what you've already given us in Christ, that we ought to build one another up and not beat one another up because you are building an unshakable kingdom. Let us be builders and not terrors. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now last week we took a long look at our first point, and you can go online and you can hear that sermon again, but let me just review where we were. Last week the first thing we saw is that Christians are to cease the self-deception of employing worldly wisdom, uh, to cease the self-deception of employing worldly wisdom. and We learned that we must beware, for each of us are master self-deceivers. We often think others deceive us, and they can, but the best person to deceive us most often is where? It's right in the mirror. We often deceive ourselves. I encourage you, if you didn't listen to that message, please do go back and and hear it again. And then we learned that our penchant for self-deception is only half of this deleterious equation. We also learned, point B, that, that worldly wisdom is spiritual folly. And we follow it at our peril. And we walk through from the very first person who took the folly, Satan, to Adam, to Eve, to to certain significant figures in the Bible and how every time worldly wisdom led them to peril. Now, just as we're not to look to the world and its wisdom, nor are we to look to ourselves and our supposed wisdom, that brings us to point two today, where we're going to zero in today. In your bulletin, uh, you have a long outline with lots of pieces. Uh, apologies, it didn't all fit in that little note section, so Miss Beth worked very hard and put something together for you. Please follow along using that as a guide. We're at point two in our message. Christian, cease looking to others for that which can only come from Christ. This is one of the really key problems when you have a lot of and factions and divisions and poor interactions is we we, we sort of look to others for what we should only find in Christ. The Christians in Corinth, well, they were looking to their human leaders when they should have been looking to their godly Savior. Uh, They sloganeered. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. But the one that they should have followed was Jesus. And so verse 21 tells us, let no one boast in Men, Galatians six says this: May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. One Corinthians one thirty one: Paul has already told us, "Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts boast." In the Lord. So, what was the answer to the petty factions within their congregation? Well, it wasn't fighting over their personal preferences, but rather it was to unite around Jesus Christ. Philippians 3 puts it plainly. Philippians 3 says this I count everything a loss my education, my status, my wealth, my reputation, my charisma my intelligence, my beauty, whatever. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. They don't matter. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. So the secret to keeping Christ central is to understand where we stand in Christ. How much you already have. If you know what you have, you won't have to reach out for things that you feel like you have to grab. Now the reason we reach for the lesser is because we forget that in Christ we already possess the greater. And that brings us to our third point today on our outlines. Christian, start understanding your standing in Christ. Christian, start understanding your standing in Christ. Listen again at verse 21. It's very clear. So let no one boast in men. Listen to this verse. verse. The end of verse 21. For all things are yours. Is that what you believe? Do you feel that way as a Christian? Is that a new thought to you? For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are, what does he say again? Yours. And You are Christ's. Christ is God's. So instead of looking to others... Instead of clamoring to grab our share of the world's crumbs before the other bums, Christians ought to comprehend that through Christ, we now have apprehended all that we really have needed. Listen again to the Scripture. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or future, all are yours. You are Christ, Christ is God's. Christ belongs to God, and friend, you belong to Christ. So in Christ, we have all we need. And this brings us to letters A through C today. The first thing is this. You need to get your arms around the idea that Christ is God's. Christ belongs to God. Now, there's some things that does mean and some things that doesn't mean. But for our outline, understand that Christ belongs to God. This is very clear at the end of our passage. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and what's it end with? And Christ is God. Okay. So now we get into some deep theological waters, all right? Uh, Time doesn't permit us to mine every nuance of the Trinity the mystery of the trinity but we do need to grasp some sort of bedrock truths to in at least a rudimentary way to understand what is meant by the statement christ is god so the first thing we're going to need to understand for a quick second is that christ is fully god he's hundred percent god he's just as much god as the other two members of the trinity how do we know this well Scripture tells us. John 1:1 1, 1 opens. In the beginning was the Word, and that's speaking of Jesus in context. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Every bit as much God. God the Son is every bit as much God as God the Father. Now we see Jesus' full divinity despite condescending to reside bodily in humanity in places like Colossians 2:9. Colossians 2:9. For in Christ, The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Christ is fully God, even though He became a man. Fully God, fully man. And we're going to hear Jesus proclaim that He's full divinity in places like John 10, 30, where He puts Himself and the Father in total parity, in utter equality. He says, I and the Father are one." And the Jews understood this implicitly as clear claims by Christ to being equal to divinity. And so they reacted violently and immediately. They didn't like this. The Bible says they picked up stones, John ten thirty one, to stone him. And Jesus answered, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, they recognized Jesus was fully and entirely human, you make yourself God. Jesus fully human, fully God. So intrinsically and eternally, Jesus is God. Fully and completely. And yet, within the covenant of redemption, the Son volunteers for subordination, even humiliation. Why? So you and I can receive salvation. Now, there's a big lesson in that for Christians, right? If we're going to lead others to Christ, we're going to have to humble ourselves and, and condescend in situations. But, but I want you to listen to how Jesus did it. In Philippians 2, the Scripture says, Christ Jesus... Though he was in the very form of God, he was totally God. From eternity past, he was God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In the Greek, the idea is to be held on to, to be retained. Uh, But instead, he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of a human. He was found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the most humiliating and excruciating death possible, death on a cross. The word excruciating means ex, out of the cross. Excrucis. Now you need to understand that this subordination, while utterly voluntary and entirely necessary, appears to be something that existed eternally within the Trinity. Even as God reveals His names, the Father was eternally the Father and the Son was eternally the The son so this isn't just expedience this is something intrinsic in their nature and yet equal in worth distinct in role one member of the trinity is called the father one is called the son seemingly from eternally uh eternity the scholars call this eternal procession and yet within it there's willful subordination among the members of the Trinity. Each member of the Trinity is equal in worth, and yet each one is distinct in role. God the Father is fully God, but Scripture says only He elects. God the Son is fully God, and yet only He incarnates. God the Spirit is fully God, and yet only He convicts and acts as a spiritual deposit as a guarantee to us. Now, lest we get too technical, because Trinity causes our minds to kind of explode the trinity is not illogical but it's not analogical there is no clear comparison to who god is does that make sense it's not one plus one plus one is three it's one times one times one equals one it's not illogical you have one god and three persons you don't have one god and three gods you don't have three persons and three gods that wouldn't make sense if one god and three persons it's logical it's just not analogical and that's why we struggle to understand it before we get too technical what i want you to understand today is that in a true, real, and biblical way, Christ is God's, And in an equally true and real and biblical but entirely different way, you and I are Christ. That's what the Scripture here says, doesn't it? That's all I want you to get your head around today. And that brings you to letter B. We belong to Christ. We belong to Christ. If you're a Christian, you belong to Jesus. You and I were redeemed by Christ. You were purchased at a price. We were bought with the precious blood of God's one and only Son. And the Bible says, therefore, you and I were not our own. We belong to Jesus. If indeed we have a a proper perspective, our lives, indeed, our life's purpose, our life's purpose are not the degrees that we get and the jobs that we choose and the spouse that we meet. We have a larger purpose than just this. Paul puts it concisely, but he puts it precisely in Philippians 1.21. And I would encourage you to write it in your Bibles. If it's your own Bible. If you're using ours, you can skip that step. In your own Bibles. Philippians 1.21 in this passage. Philippians 1.21 says what our life's purpose ought to be. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. In Christ, Peter tells us we're partakers of the divine nature. In Christ, you, me, him, her, we're partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean I become God, but it means I become more like God. I become conformed to the image of God. Jerry will tell you that 30 years ago, he wasn't Jerry, right? Right? This Jerry that you know that's vivacious and joyous and and upbeat and excited and and sharing Christ, that wasn't Jerry, right? Ann will tell you some days it's still not Jerry. But (laughs) God, we are partakers of the divine nature. All through this congregation, every single one of you who put your faith in Christ. God is shaping and molding and changing you, and things are coming out of you that isn't you, it's him. Last night, I was sharing Christ through an interpreter. And and the last time I was there, this woman wasn't a Christian. And since I've come back, she now is a Christian. And there was a difference in in her interpreting. And there was a joy, and there was an enthusiasm, and there was a... And it was Christ in her. And she's a baby, baby, baby believer. Just in the span of a couple months, she came to know Jesus. Because we're partakers in the divine nature. Now Jesus tells us in John 14, 23 that through Christ, God abides in us. He makes His home in us. And that's how we could become a perfume in the room instead of a stench in the trench. When we let Christ exude through us, it's a very beautiful, powerful, and attractive thing to a world that's hungry and hurting. But when we allow ourselves... To be ourselves and, and the old fallen man, then it, it leads people to think there's no difference between the Christian and everyone else. You need to understand also that not only is, is, is Christ in you something that assists others, but, but because we're in Christ, you lack nothing you really need. 2 Peter 1:3 makes this clear. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and His excellence. His divine power. Wherever in your life you go, I wish I was more godly. I, I wish I had more spiritual vitality, life. I, I wish I was more all in for Him. The problem isn't that you don't have access to enough electricity. The problem is either you're not plugging in or you're not turning it on. You follow? You follow? Because many Christians are crippled by the enemy's lie that some other brother has it together, and if only we were like him, we would shine for him. But the answer is, the only reason that they're shining is because they're refracting the glory of God. Every Christian I know that other Christians want to be, every Christian I know that other Christians want to be will always tell me it isn't me. It's Christ in me. Do you know why? Because even if they can't parse the theology of our passage, the spirit within them testifies, in you there's no good thing, but I'm doing a good thing. And so if you're sitting here today and you're not winning in the area you want to be winning, you're sitting where you want to be winning. You're dull where you want to be shining. You're quiet when you want to be bold. You're unloving where you want to be loving. I want to encourage you to stop trying harder and start asking Jesus to do his wonderful discipleship project in you, where he takes worldly saints and he makes, he takes worldly sinners and he makes heavenly saints. Ask Jesus, this is an area I want to shine for you. This is an area I'm not winning for you. I believe your word that you abide in me, John 1423. I believe your word that your divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory. That brings us to letter C. Through Christ, we lack nothing we need. Through Christ, the Christian lacks nothing he needs. Romans eight sixteen and 17 makes this clear. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share in his glory. John seventeen twenty two informs us that we have inherited Christ's glory, because it was bequeathed to us by the Lord Jesus. Here's another verse you might write down, because Christians really don't get this. John seventeen twenty two. Jesus says, "I have given them the glory that you gave me." Now think of the glory of Jesus, and yet he hands that over to now in this specific context, it isn't, look at how glorious I am and I'm so shiny and you're not. Listen to how he says it. He says, I have given them the glory you've given to me that they may be... You know when we're glorious? When we're victorious for Jesus. When the church unites around Jesus and has one goal and one focus and that's the gospel of Jesus and we have one mission and that's to make disciples and we look around at one another not to compare and tut-tut and stutter but we look around and we say... Boy, I'm going to pray for my brother that he would be more bold and and I'm going to pray for me that I would be more like this person in faith and that person in giving. And that Do you follow? We, We have the opportunity to reveal God's glory and interestingly enough, he wants to manifest it in our unity. Now think of churches today. Are we most known for our unity in Jesus? And do we well share the glory of Jesus? And if the answer is no, then we need Jesus to fix this. Because our position in Christ, because of our position in Christ, all the wisdom of God, all the power of God, all the providence of God can superintend whatever Satan may send. Indeed, what man means for evil, God can use for good. There are things that are going to hit you this week. There are things that have hit you this week that were meant to be irritations and deflations but it may have put you in situations whereby you were able to shine for Christ. Some of you had carpenter ants this week. I know you did because you told me about it. You came back and you had carpenter ants. And it cost money and it hurt your house. And because you had carpenter ants, the man who kills carpenter ants had to come to your house and you got to have a conversation about Jesus and they were interested. And that wouldn't have happened if you didn't have carpenter ants. Some of you were going to go to the oncologist. And for six hours, speak to the same person for six weeks. And that's not your plan. But it might be the plan for them to see someone who doesn't fear death because he knows the author of life. Through Christ, we lack nothing we need. Do you understand where you stand when you stand in Christ? Do you understand the possession of those in the position of Christian? Because Romans 8 is great, and it sets us straight. And I hope you know it. Romans 8 is this, beginning at verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good. In all things, in the flat tire, in the job loss, in the, in the, in the, in the... the, Because it's messy, remember? Remember? God's messy discipleship, even in our messy marriages, even in our messy moments, even God can work all of those things, those hard things, those painful things, those, he can work all those things for good, for those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Get off your purpose, because you're going to have a fight with God. Get on his purpose, he can do a lot in pain and in brokenness. You know, with the comfort we've received, the Bible says, we can... But you can't comfort others if you haven't first been, which means you first have to be in, yeah. Bible says that he wants to produce perseverance in us. Let me tell you two things about perseverance. It means it's not fun. Nobody has to persevere winning the lottery. I really persevered winning Powerball this week. It's tough. Pray for me. Now we're going to persevere in, you know, on vacation in Bermuda. <laughs> Nobody does that. You don't persevere that way. The two things about perseverance, it's not fun, and it doesn't go away quickly. Perseverance means it's not fun and it doesn't go away quickly. And yet God wants to produce what in us? Perseverance, which means there are going to be some things in our Christian life to make us better disciples, to make us shine for him, to to get the world's attention that probably aren't fun and that don't necessarily go away quickly. Does that feel like real Christianity to you? Because it is real Christianity. So through Christ, we lack nothing we need. Romans 8, and, and we know that in Christ in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that then condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who raised us to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So whoever's condemning us, here is Jesus affirming us. Who has a stronger voice in heaven? The accuser of the brethren. And he's right in his accusations. Many times Satan can stand before God and say, did you know this week your servant Sean did this, this, and this? He thought this and this. He felt this and this. And all I can say is, yep, yep. But then I have not just the accuser or the brother, and I have the one who lives to make intercession for the saints. And he says, you know what, this one is pardoned. This one is cleansed. This one is mine. This one is yours. He's a child of yours. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or cancer? Carpenter ants? Flat tires? No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. It isn't Christian if you were stronger. No. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through Him. See, in Christ, you have all you you need. And if you have a need, it's probably because you're not looking to, to Christ. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons neither present nor the future nor any power neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, isn't it great? It sets it straight. Is your mind twisted right now, Christian? Because someone has been bending circumstances to make you see less than what you already have in Christ. Christians, start understanding your standing in Christ, for in Christ we already have all we need. Specifically and biblically, we see that through Christ, listen to this, all of God's servants are in service to us. In Christ, all of God's servants are in service to us, which is subpoint one on your outline today. It's this, through Christ, all of God's servants are in service to us. Listen again to verses 21 and 22, and you tell me what God's word says. For all things are yours, and then he gets specific, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, whose are they? They're yours. Now, what had the Corinthians been mistakenly saying? What actions had divided them into factions and created distractions and made disruptions within the congregation? And the answer is this is what they were saying. I follow Paul. Somebody else stood up and said, I follow Apollos. And somebody else stood up and said, I follow Cephas. God's word reverses those Corinthian catchphrases. God's word says, no, 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 no. All those revered leaders, Paul and Apollos and and Cephas, you don't belong to them. They belong to you. Because... Paul and Apollos and Cephas belong to Jesus. Okay, And so those servants are Christ's servants, and Christ has dispatched those servants to help us, to equip us to do the work of the ministry. Friends, the remedy for being petty and carving a congregation into factions is to remember that our party is Jesus, and every servant is His. You're not Piper's disciple or Sproul's disciple or MacArthur's disciple, and Lord help you if you're my disciple, I've never told you to do that. And you probably know better because you have to put up with me. You're Jesus' disciple. And so towering figures like Paul and Peter, they're simply gospel servants. Servants are never meant to be the attraction, and they should never be a distraction. I'll say that sentence again, because the church in 2019 in North America is confused. Servants are never meant to be the attraction, and they should never be a distraction. Servants serve Jesus, and Jesus is deploying His servants to serve us because He loves us. And He wants to make us into a people who are effective and productive. The church is His bride. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor-teachers are simply his guides. Their job is not to become famous. Their job is to equip us for works of service. And so, friends, we've said it before, there's only one hero in the Bible, and who is it? Boy, that's weak. There's only one hero in the Bible, and who is it? It's Jesus. There's only one hero. David's not the hero. Have you read the stories of some where David was not the hero? Abraham's not the hero. Have you read some of the... There's no hero in the Bible except for Jesus. And there's only one hero in a biblical church. And do you know who that is? That's Jesus. Who died to redeem us and who lives to intercede for us. And so what does it say on the sign out front? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. Let's not ride roughshod over our brothers while we try to ride stupidly on the coattail of another when the other was just sent to equip us. Our age is intoxicated with celebrity and notoriety. But the Bible says the name that's above every name is not your pastor or some Christian on Twitter. It's the name of which every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess the wonderful, powerful, beautiful name of their Lord and ours. Now, in addition to the reality that through Christ all of God's servants are in service to us, it's also true for me and you, point two, through Christ this world ultimately belongs to us. He says, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world. Now right now, this world is being pulled by the puppeteer's strings, by Satan's strings. Ephesians speaks of Satan as the temporary, usurping ruler of this age, that he's holding folks captive through seductive lies. 1 John 5.19 is clear when John writes, We know that we are from God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one right now. But this is a temporary situation, Christian. Ultimately and inevitably, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or the world. Jesus promised this in Matthew 5, 5, in the famous Sermon on the Mount. Don't miss it. Blessed are the the meek, for they shall inherit thee. So who is ultimately going to inherit the world? God's people, because it's God's and he shares with us. Now, many saints see passages like Revelation 20 as a literal coming millennial kingdom. I happen to be one of them. uh, In which we, the church, shall return from the rapture to enjoy a reign with Jesus on earth for a thousand years. But you don't have to just go to Revelation 20 to see that. In Revelation 2, Jesus speaks to the church at Thyatira, church-age saints... And he says in verse 26, Revelation 2, 26, the one who conquers and keeps my works to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations." That means there has to still be nations. There may not be nations in eternity, but there would be in the millennial kingdom. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Again, that's speaking of their ability to disobey. That wouldn't be eternity. And yet the inability to overtly disobey and get away with it. That's not now. That's not later. That must be... Millennial. When earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the... See, it wasn't just Thyatira. Friends, the earth is ours. It's not ours right now. But it is ours one day. Because it belongs. This is my Father's world. Now, whatever your understanding on the millennium. All Christians are united that Revelation 21 promises believers eternity with God as a new Jerusalem is brought from heaven to touch down on earth and so states will certainly in eternity dwell on the new earth revelation 21 promises this then i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and i saw the holy city the new jerusalem coming down from heaven from god prepared as a bride adorned for a husband and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of god is with man And He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Because right now you go, that guy's got a better car, and he's got a bigger house, and he's the boss, and yet he's clearly stupid. (laughs) Do you understand where you stand? If you stand in Christ, know your position, and know your possession, for all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or this world, or here's another one, or life. Or life, he says. That brings us to point three. Through Christ, life belongs to us. Through Christ, life belongs to us. The most feared thing is death. Death has no sting for the Christian. Death equals promotion. If you're in Christ, you have life eternity, in eternity, but you also have life abundantly. Since Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus tells us in John five twenty one: for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he will. John three sixteen: for God so loved the world, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This isn't just some pie in the sky and a sweet by and by heavenly promise. It's a present endowment. While the world promises fulfillment, it always leaves us empty. The flesh craves gratification, but you notice it never gives lasting satisfaction. Though the devil tempts, every time we partake, we find it traps. It goes from a tempt to a trap every time. He promises liberation. It always ends in subjugation. That's always the situation. Which is why Jesus says in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I came that may have life. And how does it end? And that they may have it abundantly. There's an abundant life available for the Christian. Uh, an abundant life that's not available to the mega millions winner. It's not available to the ten-horned dictator. It's not available to whomever you are tempted to envy. But many times we as Christians forget what we have. So we're very disappointed instead of joyous. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, and I come they may have life and they may have it abundantly. Friends, through Christ and Christ alone, life belongs to us. Additionally, point four, through Christ, death has no hold on us. Through Christ, death has no hold on us. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death. Or death. Friends, since the Lord is my shepherd, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil For you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. You've heard that one, huh? Maybe you need to tell it to yourself, and maybe you need to tell it to your friend. When we don't feel like we have it abundantly. You talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus, who's facing eternity, and you have it very differently, my friend. Christian number five, through Christ, the present is our present. The present is our present. Verse 22 says this, For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, or the present. The present is our present. You and I do not need to be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, to present our requests to God, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That means that in the present, in the persevering, in that this isn't good and this isn't going away, you can go to God, you can go to God with boldness, with confidence, to the very throne of grace in your hour of need through the blood of Jesus. And guess what? As you present your request to God, he doesn't necessarily say, I'll take it away. Sometimes he does. But he will give you the peace of God in the midst of the storms of life. And no one else has this. They can medicate it, but the drug wears off. And the problem doesn't. The peace of Jesus remains. But not every Christian walks in peace. Instead, we're anxious about everything. And we pray about nothing. And we hurt. Do you understand where you stand as a Christian? The enormous privilege of a Christian. Isaiah 41.10 is our promise from Jesus in the present. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In the present, when we're given to panic, I want you to remember Joshua 1.9 and Deuteronomy 31.6. As it pertains to this, be strong. And courageous do not be terrified do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go now Christian what is true in the present is also certain in the future and that is Arabic 6 today Arabic 6 is this through Christ the future is glorious through Christ our future is glorious For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. The future. All are yours. In the last chapter of Scripture, King Jesus encourages us with these words. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the First, and the Last, the Beginning, and the End. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and go through the gates into the Holy City. Almost 2,600 years ago, the prophet Jeremiah saw the future. And he saw the future was bright if you were with the king. For I know the plans I have for you. Declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope. And how does it end? And a future. The present may be the vice. But the future is pretty nice. So Christian, please understand your position. Instead of jockeying and jostling, start comprehending the riches we are already possessing. Through Christ, we already have all we could ever need, so we need to start learning to lean on Jesus. Now, there's one more seminal scriptural principle in this puny little pint-sized passage pregnant with important messages, and it is the final thing that I want us to see is this. I want you to look at verses 21 and verse 22, verses 21 and 22, because verses 21 and 22 speak of our Christian liberty, and then when you get down to verse 23, it speaks of our Christian responsibility. 21 and 22, you and I have liberty. 23, you and I have responsibility. Verses 21 and 22 both say, our things are yours, our Christian liberty. Verse 23, and you are Christ. So we have this great liberty and we have this momentous responsibility. Remember, chapter 3 is about our being careful and building up the church. It's a chapter encouraging us to, best, to invest our best in Jesus. Uh, the Bible tells us to, to use the gold and the silver and, and the precious stones. It's a chapter calling us to give our first fruits and not our leftovers to Jesus. It's a chapter telling us to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these other things can be added to you. If we are going to build a church that will not turn to ashes when the final fire falls, we must recall both our great Christian liberty and all that we have And we must recognize our great Christian responsibility. Because both are true. Yeah, brother, all are yours. Get it, understand it, appropriate it, laugh laugh in it, be joyful in it, be victorious. But you're Christ. And I I know Christians who are are beaten down because they don't understand what they have. And I know other Christians that are almost like arrogant and they don't behave to honor Jesus because they talk about how we're kings and we're powerful and we're... You you ever heard those Christians? They're usually on the God channel. They talk about all this wonderful stuff about Jesus and they live like the devil. Right? And then they tell me, well, I'm a child of the king. Yeah, you need to get spanked. (laughs) God disciplines those he loves. Did you follow? We have Christian liberty. Know it, own it, believe it. And we have responsibility. Know it, own it, believe it. If you're going to build a church that will not turn to ashes when the final fire falls. We must recall both our Christian liberty and our Christian responsibility because all are yours and you and I are Christ. Let's pray. Eternal Father, strong to save. Save us from our petty jockeying and instead give us eyes to see and minds to start grasping what in Christ we are already possessing. Lord Jesus, you have so blessed us with numerous spiritual gifts. May we be diligent in investing your blessings that just as your gospel has taken root in our hearts, may your gifts bear fruit through the efforts of our hands and lips. May we joyously remember that through you, eternal life belongs to us. And may we long to see it belong to our friends and neighbors. May we remember that through Christ, death has no hold on us. And may we bear witness to this, that it may also be true for our co-workers. May we, when discouraged or downtrodden, remember that in Christ our future is glorious. And then may we, with renewed resolve, to conduct ourselves in the present in a manner worthy of a child of the King, be ambassadors of heaven that might be attractive in pointing others to Jesus. So Lord, we ask that you would purge us of our arrogance that ran through the Corinthians like wildfire. May you purge us of our pettiness that seems to be our first response as it is our second nature. Purge us of our sinful desires to be right instead of being righteous. May Calvary Church, by your great grace, consciously and consistently not jockey for position but instead comprehend our possession so that all who come behind us may find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe and the lives that we live inspire them to obey. Lord Jesus, may all who come behind us find us faithful. We believe in your messy discipleship project. And we believe that by your divine power that you have given us all we need for life and godliness, that you can turn us from worldly sinners into heavenly saints. And we ask that you would do this. Do this for us. Do this for those that you burden for us to pray for, to see your work in them. Let us not be stingy and selfish, but to pray for one another as long as it's called today, that the deceitfulness of sin would not harden our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.